little Jew walked into a big city, didn't know a soul, started walking around like a tourist in the marketplace, the Agora, as it is called. And there he saw a lot of statues, a lot of statues to the gods. And he saw one that was dedicated to the unknown god. And this brilliant young recently converted Jew said to himself, I know his name. And I think I'm going to tell this city about it. And a group of us stood a week ago today at that spot. Mars Hill, Athens, Greece, Paul, the preacher, alone, having left Thessalonica and Berea, he came to Athens. And he started describing to the people there in the marketplace, the Agora, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the incarnate God. So he reasoned in the synagogue, went to the Jews, and to God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happen to be there, like you and I happen to be here today. And here talking about the same man he talked about, and sharing the same truth that he shared, and proclaiming the same facts that he proclaimed, and seeing lives transformed even as he saw them transformed in Athens, Greece. Nine o'clock this morning, a grown man walked down the center aisle. And his first statement to me was, I've come to accept Jesus Christ this morning as my Lord and my Savior. It's still happening. It can happen to you. It can happen right here in this spiritual marketplace. For the message of Christ and the resurrection is as powerful and potent now as it was then. And some of the philosophers there, the Epicureans and the Stoics, who happened to be listening to him, they began to discuss with him. Epicureans were uh, what we would call atheists. They didn't believe there was any God. There is no God, they said. We're just the natural result of the collection of atoms. There is no God at all. These were very brilliant people, and, and not, uh, as sometimes misunderstood, the Epicureans were not necessarily uh, profligate individuals at all. Uh, they believed in pleasure, but the primary pleasure they were speaking about was the pleasure of the, of the mind and understanding meaning and truth, not just uh, sensual pleasure. They were very erudite individuals. So we want to hear more about this. The Stoics were also there. The Stoics, uh, basically followers of Socrates, uh, they, they believed there was a God, but you couldn't know him. 
Uh, they believed in what we would call uh, pantheism. God was everywhere and, in a sense, nowhere. He had, he had no name. He had no face. He had no place. But there was a kind of general feeling of the fact that there is a God. Uh, some of the Greek writers and, and the poets referred to the gods. They, of course, had their Mount Olympus and their, their mythological gods. They believed in many gods. And they said, we want to hear more about this god you're talking about. So they invited him to the Areopagus, to Mars Hill. And there Paul told them about Jesus and the resurrection. <clears throat> it's a marvelous message. You read about it in the 17th chapter of Acts. Now, Paul was a very brilliant man himself. God had prepared him for this kind of involvement with uh, the intellectuals of the day. You need to understand that this was the epitome of intellectualism here at Athens, Greece. This was the ultimate culture. This was the golden age people. There looming above Mars Hill is that incomparable, magnificent Parthenon in which was the statue to Athena. Paul, standing there in Mars Hill, a kind of forum, immediately adjacent to the Parthenon, <coughs> said this. I uh, see that uh, you people are very religious, uh, superstitious even. And uh, I see that in every way you are very religious, for I walked around and observed your objects of worship, paying them a compliment. He's even using a little humor here, kind of subtle humor. I even found an altar with this inscription, quote, to an unknown God. Now, that may be the inscription that you have in your heart, and you may not know God. You may not know him. There are two kinds of atheists. There are those who say there is no God. And there are some honest individuals who say that, who struggle with that. I've talked with such individuals, shared books with them, as maybe some of you have. There are some people who have a serious intellectual doubt about the existence of God. There are some people who say there is no God. That's one kind of atheist. The other kind, much more numerous, are those who say no God. They do not say there is no God. They just say no God. No to God. Now, they could be uh, disciples of, uh, and could quote Invictus. I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. No God. I do not know how it is in your heart and in your life. But I want to introduce you to the God you can know. And that's what Paul did here at Athens. His name is Jesus. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Can you imagine saying that in the shadow of the Parthenon? He's not up there in that big, beautiful, marble, magnificent structure. He doesn't dwell in the temple made with hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything 
because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. God did this so that men would seek him. Listen to this marvelous preacher with God-given ability reaching out beneath the surface of their intellectualism to say in so many words, your heart's hungry, isn't it? Your students of philosophy, as I have been, you've read the Stoics, you've read uh, Socrates, you've read Plato, but your heart's hungry. You are the erudite of the day, you're the leaders of the city, you are the citizens of Athens, but your heart's empty. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him. Perhaps you'll do that today. And find him. You will know God. And find him. Though he is not far from each one of us, closer to you than your own breath right now. In fact, he is the one who gives you breath. He is nearer to you right now than the beating of your heart. And he wants to be invited into the inner sanctum of your own spirit, into the holy holies of your own life, and you make him your Lord and your God and your Savior and your friend. For in him, Paul said, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, and hear this brilliant Paul, with great wisdom reaches in and picks out a phrase from one of the stoic poets. We are his offspring. You see, stoical friend, even your own poet says, you came from somewhere. And from someone, he's not far from you. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill, and every mind in that audience jumps to the Parthenon and to Mars, to, to Mount Olympus, and to the Agora on the marketplace. No, he's not there. He's not an image made by man's hands or design. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And he talked to them about Jesus and the resurrection. Some of them sneered. <laughs> they scoffed. Others said, we'd like to hear some more about this. It's, this has a kind of ring of truth to it. Maybe there's some meat on this bone. Maybe there's some hope in this message. Maybe there's some water in this well. I'd like to know more about it. Maybe that's why you're here today. Maybe that's what really brought you here today in spite of Sunday morning and 
sleep and read the paper, watch the British Open. You got up and got dressed. Went through some parking problems. You got it. What drew you here? It wasn't Buckner Fanning or Tommy Lyons or the choir. People you like to meet, surely, but something deeper than that, really, wasn't it? Isn't there a hunger in every man's heart to know God and to know that God knows us and that he is with us and for us and loves us and forgives us? That's why you're here. I'd like to hear more about this. Talk to us some more. And some, a few, said, we believe. A member of the Areopagus, a man by the name of Dionysius, and a woman, Damaris, and a few others. They had a church there all of a sudden on Mars Hill. Prominent people, woman, prominent woman obviously in the community, and a number of others. Listen, Jesus Christ will work in your culture. Jesus Christ will work in the rarefied atmosphere of academia. Jesus Christ is not out of place in the classroom, the schoolroom, the university hall, the lecture hall. Jesus Christ does not take the back seat to any Socrates or Plato. We Christians do not need to apologize for the faith once delivered and the truth once demonstrated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Relegated by some to the sidelines in the academic world, my friend, He belongs in the center of the classroom. For it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. Thank God for Paul who was not apologetic about his faith in the academic environment of an Athens. He'll work there. And my friends, He'll work in your life. Paul went on down to Corinth, the center of uh, commerce, business, even a very wicked city, known for its wickedness. In the ancient world, Corinthianized meant to have sexual intercourse indiscriminately with anybody and everybody. It was a synonym for depravity, to Corinthianize. That's how bad the city was. Half a million people lived in Corinth. In the center was Acrocorinth, the mountain, the high mountain on top of which was a temple dedicated to Aphrodite, and a thousand prostitutes were there. Temple prostitutes, and to have sexual intercourse with them was an act of worship. Notice the gospel move into that sort of sensate, immoral, gutter-like culture. Would be very much at home in America today. The gospel moved in the current in the person of Paul, joined then by Timothy and others. Priscilla and Aquila became Christians. The gospel work will work in the commercial world. It will work in the currents of the world. It will work in the midst of evil when it surrounds us and permeates everything that is said and done and thought. We don't need as a church or as Christians to treat the gospel like it's some little tender hothouse plant that has to be sheltered over here away from the university atmosphere or the commercial atmosphere or the sinful atmosphere of a Corinth or of an Athens. The same power of God that worked in Galilee will work in Athens and Corinth and in San Antonio for there is no place off limits to the power of God. Well, he got into some conflict there and they had him arrested 
brought a charge against him. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just telling people that God loved them. Isn't it amazing that you go around the world telling people that God loves you and that he forgives you and that all you have to do is trust him and you're forgiven and your sins are cleansed and you're saved forever. And somehow those in places sometimes of authority, often religious authority, feel threatened by this unconditional love of the grace of God. Well, that's what happened to Paul. Uh, Some people became Christians and so they brought a charge against him. And uh, he was concerned about it, rightly so. Who wouldn't be? And in the 18th chapter, the following chapter in the book of Acts, all this difficulty was happening happening to him. And so the Lord talked to him. I don't know what's happening in your life. I don't know what kind of accusation, what kind of fear, what kind of problem. It may be Athens-like in the sense that it's an intellectual question. Or it may be Athens-like in that you worship some idol, some material entity. Or it may be Corinth-like, it may be business pressure, commercial confusion, financial difficulties. It may be overt sin in your own heart, in your own life, in your own practice. I don't know what it is that you in in your own life might be facing. It may be the breakdown of of family life or a sense of emotional stability. It may be that you feel gripped by a nameless, faceless kind of fear. Well, that can happen to everybody in one way or another through no fault of the person. Sometimes it is the result of our own conscious misbehavior, but often it is not. Paul was concerned here. And so the Lord came to him and talked to him and said this, and I'll read it to you with the prayer that it will be an encouragement to you as it was to him and ought to be to us as a church. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. Did you hear that? I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. I have other members of my body here that are going to help you. Other members of my church are going to be a source of strength to you. Other hands will be a hand of comfort. Other words will be a word of solace. I have a lot of people here. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. The gospel will work in your world, your commercial world, your business world, your personal world, your family world, your tent-making world, for that's what he was doing, he and Priscilla and Aquila. He will work there. We went to the island of Patmos after visiting Ephesus. Paul left Corinth and went to Ephesus, took Priscilla and Aquila with him, left them there, and he went on to Jerusalem and then came back later and spent two and a half years in Ephesus. And then John, the apostle, came, the mother of Jesus, who was entrusted to him at the cross by the Lord himself. And John then became the pastor of the church at Ephesus, this magnificent city of a quarter of a million people, the most magnificent ruins anywhere in the world, one of the great cities of the world. And many of the leading Christians of the early church lived there and worked there and worked out of there. 
uh, Luke and uh, wrote much, much of the Gospel of Luke uh, in Ephesus. Uh, John, of course, was the pastor. Uh, Barnabas uh, was there. Timothy was there. Titus was there. Mark was there. Paul, of course, was there. Priscilla and Aquila were there. And it was in Ephesus that they began to collect the writings of Paul. And it was in Ephesus that we began to see the accumulation of what we know today as the New Testament. That's where it all began. That's where it all began to come together. This was a prominent and powerful church. And John was the pastor there. In fact, it was so influential that the Roman emperor had him banished to Patmos, an island off the coast of Asia Minor, not many miles in distance from Ephesus, but he was separated from people he loved, separated from his church, separated from people who were part of his family literally and spiritually. He had to deal with that. And that may be where you are now. And he, at this point, John was an old man. He was an old man, and there on that island, Patmos is not a it's not your beautiful Greek island. It's rocky. It doesn't even have a water supply to this day. They have to bring water in from roads. It was for prisoners, political prisoners mostly, barren, not attractive. And in the distance, dim though it might be, we could see Asia Minor. We could see the mainland. We could see what John could see. We could see home, and he couldn't go. So some of you feel that kind of separation today, that pain that comes from not being able to do what you want to do or be what you want to be or be with whom you want to be with. Maybe the loss of a loved one. It may be someone who's gone on to be with the Lord. It may be some, a broken home, a broken heart, a broken relationship. But separation is there, the pain of it. I look mentioned this earlier in the early service, and I sat here a while ago while we were saying it's looking across this great group of folks, and I, I look at hundreds of people in this room. You and I have been out to the cemetery together, and we've come back without someone that was very near and dear to you. heart has been broken. You face the, the trauma of that, the tears of that. Listen, the gospel will work in Athens, and the gospel will work in Corinth, and the gospel will work at your Patmos. God will be with you. Listen to John. He couldn't go to church, but he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, he says. I, John, he says, as he writes in the Revelation, which he wrote from Patmos, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours. Ours, you notice plural, ours at one time or another. We're all a part of that. Ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because I was preaching the word of God and talking about Jesus. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. which said, write on the scroll what you see and send it to the churches, to Ephesus, 
Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Trinity Baptist Church in San Antonio. It's as much to you as it was to them. It's as much to me as it is to them. I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flaming fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. He's touching you. You sang it a moment ago. He's touching you and he's saying the same thing to you. He laid his hand upon you and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. Don't be afraid. This gospel of the Son of God will suffice in the intellectual atmosphere, the cultural elitism of Athens. The gospel will work in the streets of Corinth and your tent-making business and the pressures that are upon you because of the environment in which we are forced to live. This gospel will work for you when you feel you have your own private patmos and feel separated and alone, detached. Jesus Christ will be with you. You say, that's a good word, Buckner, from the Bible, but what about life? What about it? You could have a thousand testimonies from people here to the effect of what I've just said. Hundreds of you could say and should say amen to the truth verified here in the Word of God. Yesterday morning, early in Athens, late Friday night, your time, a number of us got on an airplane in Athens to fly to Amsterdam, then Amsterdam to Houston to come home last evening. And we got on the plane early, and the plane was supposed to leave at about uh, 6.15. The pilot uh, came on and said, we have been delayed. We are, we'll be here maybe an hour and a half because of traffic delays. Well, I couldn't imagine why there were so many traffic delays in, in uh, Yugoslavia, I mean in, in Athens, but it was because of what's going on in Yugoslavia. They explained all the turmoil and the trouble there. Air traffic is having to be rerouted around there, and also aircraft is going in there. So the airways were clogged, and so as a result, we had to sit on the ground, not for an hour and a half, fortunately, but for a good while before we could take off for Amsterdam. While sitting there, I got to thinking about friends of mine in Yugoslavia, some of you in this room, Blaine Hall and others who've been there on mission trips. 
in years past. I remember being in the home of a Christian layman after I'd preached in the church on Sunday morning, a beautiful little community. You'll remember Baki Petrovac, right on the banks of the Danube River. And, and uh, I went to the home after lunch, after the service for lunch. And the man who was our host, I noticed he didn't have a right arm. He was a farmer. Uh, his wife and his wife's mother, who was an invalid because of a heart disease, and a son who was away in school in, in Belgrade. And during the course of the afternoon, uh, he told us his story through an interpreter. He was working in the fields one day, and his arm got tangled in some of the equipment, and he couldn't extricate himself. And they didn't miss him until dark because they expected him to be working all day. And his arm was mangled. He nearly bled to death. They saved him, took him to the hospital, had to amputate his arm. And he thought he was going to die and wanted to die. Spent weeks in the hospital in Belgrade. And he said he prayed incessantly that the Lord would let him die. He said, how can I work my farm without a right arm? I can't do it. I don't have any help. My wife can't help. My son is away. I have no insurance. What can I do? He said one night he was in such despair, he went down to the end of the hall, and with the one good arm he had, he tried to raise the window. He was going to jump out and kill himself. Couldn't get the window open, or he would have. And he came back, and he laid there, and he prayed, Oh, God, take me. He said, God said to me, in that hospital, you put your faith and your trust in me, and I will be your right arm. He said, my farm is better than ever. I'm making more money than I ever made. The work is easier than it's ever been. He has been my right arm. It'll work in Athens, it'll work in Corinth, it'll work at Patmos, and it'll work at Baki Petrovac, and it'll work for you and for me. They were trying to build a big bridge, the Hellgate Bridge in New York, across the East River. And they discovered a sunken vessel that had been there for a long, long time, embedded in the mud of the East River. And they had to extricate that boat before they could build the foundation for this huge bridge. And they couldn't get it up. They had tugboats there. They got barges to come out with cranes. They could not lift that boat. It was embedded in the mud of the East River. But they had to remove it because it was to be the center spot for the foundation of the bridge. So... A man had a brilliant idea. He had a huge barge floated down the river, a barge normally used to carry huge stones. And he placed that barge immediately over that sunken vessel. And when the tide was at its lowest, he chained that barge to that sunken vessel and stood back and waited for the tide to change. And when the powers of the tide brought about by the force of the celestial bodies above us 
brought that water in and began to lift that big barge. It began to lift that sunken vessel out of the muck and the mire of the East River. And what man could not do, God did through the powers of the universe working from beneath it and the celestial powers he had placed there pulling from above. And he lifted that boat. And someday, someday, one-armed man from Yugoslavia, Paul from Athens, Demetrius, and Timothy, and Priscilla, and Aquila, and John, and millions of others who have put their faith and trust in him will someday be standing there and will say, there he is. Look at him. There he is. And we'll sing together as a chorus from sinking sand. He lifted me from shades night to plains of light. Oh, praise his name. He lifted me. And now on a higher plane I dwell. And with my soul, I know tis well. Is it well with your soul? It can be. Trust him, acknowledge him, follow him. Love him, serve him, and know the lifting, redeeming, renewing, saving power of the Son of God.